Trigger warning. This week's podcast, Alan Sparks speaks candidly about PTSD, his dark days, and a time in his life when he was actively suicidal. Please take care of yourself. And if this isn't the podcast for you, or if you're not feeling your best today, maybe skip this episode and put yourself first. If you do need to reach out right now, there are professionals ready to help 24-7 at Lifeline, call 13114 or Men's Line, 1300 789 978 or at Beyond Blue, call 1300 224636. Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. So welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. I'm Tina Winchester and I'm joined today by Alan Sparks. Let me tell you a little bit about Alan. He's a Deputy Commissioner of the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales. He's had a remarkable career in the police force, which has led him to being awarded the Cross of Valour, OAM, and a Commendation for Brave Conduct. Alan is a survivor of PTSD and an advocate for the inclusion of lived experience in areas of mental health awareness and suicide prevention and I'm over the moon to be talking to Alan this morning so good morning Alan and welcome. Good morning Tina how are you? I'm really good thanks I've had a cup of coffee and the sun's shining so I'm ready to go. Excellent. So Alan as you know our podcast focuses on careers and mental health so let's start um, if we can at the beginning of your career in the police force was it always a, a career choice for you? Yeah it was from a very early age when I was at high school uh, unfortunately I many reasons wasn't able to go to university and pursue a, a passion of geology that I had and uh, I assess what other options I had and for me the police force was a career that offered uh, ability, a lot of excitement, a lot of variety uh, at that stage a good salary compared to what was in the market and yeah, I, from the moment I joined up it was like I've made exactly the right choice. Oh, fabulous. What was the training like? I mean, I can imagine it, it'd be pretty different these days to, to, to when you first started out. Was it a lengthy training and, and, and quite intense or was it pretty short and get out there and get the job done? It was short. It was very intense. It was a total of 12 weeks from induction to passing out at the academy with a gun and sort of handcuffs on your hips. Wow. And straight into it. Tell me about those kind of early days of being on the beat, because I'm assuming that you, you were kind of, um, you know, on the beat and, and out in the community. What kind of things were you facing in those early days as a, a new recruit? It was an exceptional contrast to my life before I joined the police force, yeah, coming from a small country town. Um, I was a shearer before I joined the police. And here I was uh, in the heart of the inner city, the the uh, red red light district of Sydney. Death was a regular occurrence. Um, tragically, most of the deaths that I encountered were um, very unpleasant because of either violence or uh, the fact that these people had died alone and had not been found for a long time. So it was uh, and just seeing people in states of life that I had never imagined could be possible. And but there was also those times where you could just help people. 
And that was, I think, what most good police really like doing is just helping people. So in those early days when you were kind of exposed to that, well, how old were you? 19. Oh, geez, that is young. That is really young. Did you ever think, I don't know if I can do this? No, no, I never, never thought that. Uh, in the early parts of my career, there were times where you were exposed to things that upon reflection you go, oh, my Lord, how did I ever possibly cope with that? Mm. Uh, how did that not impact me? And I think it gets back to understanding the physiological processes all first responders go to. That, you know, once, when, when they start their careers, physiologically they are very, very strong and healthy. But over time, through a number of circumstances, which I'm sure we'll discuss this morning, uh, that strength uh, lessens. So young and fit and, um, you know, kind of wide-eyed and enthusiastic and doing all the things that we need to do to keep well um, was acted like a bit of a protection and a buffer for you at that time. Yeah, also because I just loved what I was doing. And there's a big distinction between doing something you love and being able to manage all the extraordinary circumstances as opposed to being in a, in a career or a pathway that you either don't like or detest. Oh, I agree completely. So the camaraderie in those early days, those early years in your career, um, tell me about the camaraderie. It was interesting because at first, because you're, you're new, uh, there's not instant camaraderie uh, to, I mean, we, I, I was put into a station where there was like in total about 230 police officers doing all sorts of different duties, but you were brand new out of the academy and there's no way in the world that you could have proven yourself to any of these men and women uh, until you're out on the streets showing exactly what, what your worth was. And so I think for me, in reflection, it was a case of um, abiding what we were told at the academy, and that is keep your eyes open, your ears open, and your mouth shut. So look, learn, and listen, and, yeah. and just slowly, slowly take it easy. And then over time, um, you are able to you know, highlight what skills you may have naturally or have developed, and that people can trust you and people can rely on you. And I think that was because we were in an area that would, there was a lot of exposure to uh, potential acts of violence upon ourselves. Mm. Uh, we had to make sure that we could rely on each other. That was very important. So in those days, anything to do with emotional health or mental health, was it ever discussed or was it swept under the carpet? Well, it, it wasn't discussed because we never saw police officers responding or behaving or acting in a manner that they thought that we thought their mental health was declining or had declined to such a state that they should not be operational. So we're talking about you know, a completely different era because you know it was back in the days where you did your job, you did your work, you went home and you had your life outside of the police. And there was there weren't the pressures on individuals that there are today so it, we and we played a lot of sport we socialized we had fun um, there yeah, it was just it was different very very different was it harder um, 
I think that, I mean, there's certainly the work we did, we, we were exposed to a whole raft of uh, critical incidents as people are today. But, but I see now it's the, the additional pressures that people are under across, across all of our society that, that is making the difference. Did it feel simpler in those days in terms of, you know, with it, especially being in a high pressure job, that when you came home at the end of the day, the job was left behind to a degree. Um, and then you had connections with community and connections with family and all of the, those things that we know keep as well. And yet, these days, we don't tend to have that. We're all, we, we, we tend to be on 24-7. We're accessible through um, devices that we hold in our hands. And our communities have shrunk to the point where it, for a lot of people, if they're lucky enough just to have a, um, you know, parents and children at home, um, it, it's a good thing. Um, but there's nothing kind of more extended than that. Yeah, I think that's... One of the differences I see, Tina, is when I first started as a police officer, we, we worked eight-hour shifts and we would work a set period of eight-hour shifts, so we had some routine. The biggest challenge I see to our physiological health today is our, is our lack of quality sleep. That, for me, is, is the most significant change for all of us, not only first responders, but for all of us, and therefore... We are doing our time at work, but our connection to work is increasing through, uh, as you say, our attachment to devices, but also we are not doing the things we need to do in relation to getting the quality sleep that is absolutely crucial for us. So to, before we would we'd go to work, We'd come home, um, we would do whatever, we'd go to sleep and we would get our whatever quality, quality period of sleep. And we didn't have devices to keep us awake, deliberately or unintentionally. Uh, we weren't subject to the different emotions we are impacted by through social media or all those things. It was, it was far more personal, far more personal contact, far more personal connection, far more physical connection. Uh, there was so much more reality to our world back then as opposed to what there is today. Yeah, I agree. And um, sleep, when we become unwell with our mental health, is often the first thing that's affected. I absolutely agree. And also on the, uh, on the other side is that's the first thing that we can take a positive change in to get our sleep back in order. But we don't. We, we stay awake worrying. We, we stay on our devices to um, hide, hide from what, what's affecting us. All those factors are stopping us from doing it. I, yeah, sleep is, um, is the number one, that's for sure. Um, so as you move through your career and did your lifestyle change? Is that, do, when you look back, was it a, a slow decline or, or did you kind of with, find yourself not doing the things in your life that you knew, you know now, kept you well and then that kind of snowballed or was there an, an event that kind of led you to being unwell? I think that, you know, I've, I'm very fortunate. I've had the, the luxury of time to really 
go back and dig very, very deep as to why I became so unwell as I did. Because for me, I could never accept that it was possible that I became as unwell as I did. So it was important to determine why. And I reflect back to uh, 1993, uh, my wife, who was also a serving police officer, a detective, and I to uh, Europe. We were married in Paris. We spent five months riding push bikes around Europe for our honeymoon. Beautiful. We came back to Australia um, physically and psychologically. We were both, I would suggest, at the ex- much, much higher levels of, um, of fitness physically and mentally. So that was in uh, September 1993 and by October 1996, um, I was attempting to end my life. So what happened in that three-year period that caused me to become as unwell as I did? And I can see that what happened was returning to work, um, my workload uh, increased phenomenally in relation to one particular investigation that I was tasked to undertake. That investigation was causing a very, very significant amount of conflict between myself and my commanders. Um, I was There was no resources provided to me and it was one of the most intense, unique investigations I had to carry out. So what I see was the, the reduction in my physical and mental health started out being the development of being chronically stressed. Let me just stop you there and ask you, because this knowledge is invaluable for people that you know, might be kind of moving into becoming unwell or noticing things about themselves. So this is critical stuff. What did chronic stress feel like for you when you look back and think about what was going on then? I think what I recall now is it caught me by surprise. So back to work, super fit physically, mentally, major investigation, but First of all, uh, my sleep quality and quantity reduced dramatically because I was just continually up worrying about this investigation. Uh, My level of physical fitness started to decline because I was working so hard, didn't have time to train. My diet changed from eating good, sensible, regular meals to just grabbing Mm -hmm. what I could when I could. Uh, Started to smoke more and and started to increase my alcohol and increase my caffeine. So they're the warning signs. If, if any of those things start to take place, uh, you're in danger. Yeah. So instead of understanding and knowing how those things would amplify my decline in health, I let them get worse and worse. So that continued... And then there was a lot of emotional uh, impact because of the conflict in the workplace. It was becoming toxic. Uh, I felt alone. I felt isolated. I felt uh, unsupported. Uh, my wife uh, was, you know, she had a very challenging role in, in her police career. She was investigating the sexual and physical abuse of children. Couldn't burden her. Uh, didn't want to appear weak to anybody that wasn't coping. I wanted to prove to everybody I could cope. Pushing myself harder and harder and harder. And then, so this was uh, 93, um, we had a situation where my wife 
uh, her, her life was challenged, as was our unborn child's life was challenged through a medical situation in pregnancy. Uh, that was added to the, the stresses I was under. And then this, this particular investigation just went on and on and on and on and got harder and harder. And then tragically, um, an incident occurred in Crescent Head where two colleagues were murdered. And that was a situation that caused such a physical and mental reaction um, at a time that I was chronically stressed. Mm. The parallels I see today's world is most people who are working are either chronically stressed or borderline chronically stressed. Mm. And a significant acute stress situation will, will, will come into their lives and they have nothing to fight it with. Yeah, we've got nothing left. No. And then bang down you go, you try and fight back. You can't. In my situation, that was exactly what happened. More conflict. Uh, the previous situation was was getting worse. And then another critical incident that occurred that, that absolutely destroyed any fabric of resilience I had left. And that's when I became overwhelmed by PTSD, depression, and suicidal ideation. So it really did get to to you know crisis point. Can we talk about the suicidal ideation? Your experience with really getting to that point? Yeah, sure. That's uh, that's it's very important. We do this talk about this because yeah, what it does. I just want to make sure you're comfortable. Oh, thank you, Tina. I, I appreciate your concerns, but but it's important that and this is what I talk to first responders about. You know, this what it's like to feel as though you want to end your life. And also, we know that clearly I'm, I'm alive and well, so hope of recovery is, is critical. So it starts off that, for me, I started to think I'm not coping. And when you become fearful of something, there's what we call the HPA axis. Um, that is our, the way our body responds to fear. Now, in normal circumstances, that axis uh, is cyclical. So we experience fear, our body responds, and then fear is over and our body calms down, our adrenal glands fill back up again, so to speak, in simplified terms, and we're ready to respond to fear again. But when you start to become so fearful of a whole raft of things, that HPA axis becomes dysfunctional and our body, our major organs and our brain starts to be damaged. And that starts a cycle that, unless it's intercepted, will get worse and worse. So I was chronically stressed, had developed PTSD, depression, and I became terrified that I was going mad. So that's an additional fear. I became terrified that I was worthless. That's an additional fear. I, I, was, I had developed this horrible feeling that I was, I was hopeless, so much guilt and shame and that I couldn't cope, and that I was going mad. So there's all these symptoms of the PTSD you're dealing with, plus all these, these other secondary but parallel emotions that your body is just not coping with. For me, then I started to develop this horrendous physical pain that my body was racked with. Um, I didn't help myself. I didn't, you know, I just kept drinking more and more and more, smoking more and more, not sleeping. And I look back, Tina, to the second particular critical incident. Um, I literally did not sleep for a week after that. Oh, 
go, Alan. And it's tough. Yeah. And I and I look back at that that week, and I think, had I have known how dangerous being sleep deprived was, I think I would have gone to the doctor and said, "Look, I've I'm, I have to sleep. Mm. Help me get sleep for a start." So it got to that stage where I I just couldn't I couldn't see any way out except to end my life. And uh, that's what I tried to do. And those thoughts, Alan, did they stay with you? Were they fleeting? Were they persistent? Uh, they, uh, it just got worse and worse, Tina. And uh, you know, I was having these horrible visions of hurting my family. And so it then became a decision that um, I did not want to put my family at risk. So I uh, took, the, took the physical uh, pathway to uh, to try to end my life, and it was just fortuitous. One of those sliding door moments that the, the colleague uh, was there and got the gun from me, and uh, and got me home. And and I was taken to hospital that night by my wife, and uh, then I I just it disclosed everything in a in a state of absolute distress, mm-hmm. emotional, physical uh, distress. I. I I never thought it was humanly possible that anybody could be so broken, mm. and um, and that's when the the support of my wife uh, became clearly evident. And and another one of those sliding door moments. Had my wife not been there, then there's I don't believe there's any way that I I would have survived that period of my life. Wow. Let me just ask you about your colleague. What what was it that your colleague did that you know because what a what a guy i'm assuming it's a guy um you know how did he gently kind of approach you in terms of you we have to take you to hospital i want to help you i want i don't want this to happen uh didn't actually work quite like that um yeah i was uh walking to a room with my gun and he obviously saw i didn't look right or whatever uh, came up and asked me a question. Uh, he took the gun from me and offered any resistance. I was just completely shattered. And he took the gun from me, um, secured it, and then drove me home and uh, let me leave the car and go inside on my own and sort of wish me the best uh, and left me there on my own. Um, mm. And look, that's no... No, it's no reflection. No, no. I'm just saying that's that's what we did back then. Yes. Yeah. So they then called my wife on the police radio. She came home and found me. And then another colleague uh, contacted the hospital and obviously spoke to my wife and then Deb took me to the hospital. But to highlight how things were back then, my colleague who arranged the, the crisis counselling, um, he was severely reprimanded by the commanders for doing so. Really? Uh, and you think, you know, we, we have come a fair way, but when you look back to how things were, um, how did we not lose more people? Oh, yeah. So then um, the next morning it was back to the, uh, the police doctor, straight up to the only psychiatrist in the town, um, and he was very blunt and very matter-of-fact and uh, you know, asked me a question as to whether I wanted to live or die and explained uh, that there weren't too many options available. 
Um, I told him I'd gone mad and he, he uh, very correctly explained that I hadn't gone mad but explained that I had mental illnesses mm. and what they were, essentially what he believed they had been caused by, but we didn't know, or I certainly didn't know much, if anything, about PTSD. But I think the, one of the things that sticks out for me, Tina, is that for many people, I, I would assume they think, oh, well, Al's at the psychiatrist now, so he's he'll be fine. Everything's great. You know, he'll he'll be better tomorrow. Um, Only. Yeah, and that's that's the, the sad tragedy is that by the time you reach that state, it's a long way back mm. to even try to recover. So the end game is we have to ensure that people do not get to that state. And that's what it's, this is all about, the work that you do, the work that we do, this podcast, you know, everything that we can possibly do to get the message out there about not reacting when people get to crisis, but that early intervention, noticing things about other people and knowing what to do, what to say and how to help. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and it's important that we understand the, the physiological process where that starts to break down and that's the time that we need to intercept personally and, yeah. and organisationally. We need to be conscious of the physiological risks uh, when people are likely to be uh, impacted and providing education to them to allow them to start to rebuild their, their personal defences. Yeah, and see, education is key because... Th- you know, I know I'm teaching granny here, but education is key in terms of this kind of stuff isn't taught at school. You know, people are not taught about what life is all about and how we can notice things that are going on around us that are signals that we need to make some changes or be doing some things differently. A hundred percent. And you know, my belief is we need to be educating our children from the earliest possible uh, in- interaction in the education system. Yeah, absolutely. That's well, I do it with my children, and to the point where they get a bit sick of it. <laughs> yeah, but you can't you can't uh, prepare them too much. No, no, I agree. So, had you ever had any contact with? the mental health profession or inpatient units um, prior to becoming unwell other than in a role of a police officer taking somebody in maybe that was in crisis themselves? That's exactly what it was like. So therefore, and we did not interact with people who are mentally unwell mm-hmm. in a dignified, respectful, understanding manner. It was, mm-hmm. it was so discriminatory. Um, it was so derogatory. And so, therefore, for, for me to be suddenly in that position that I was, I was one of them, no, no, I, I can't be. Well, yes, you are. And that's, and that, look, I, I don't want to tell anybody where I am because they'll all immediately be, brand, be branded. Um, and we know that the word stigma comes from the Greek word stigmata, where people were physically branded with a brand on their forehead, um, identifying them as being uh, criminals or, or slaves or unworthy citizens. So... I felt as though I had this this horrible brand on me that I was um, just so weak, so so shameful. It was just horrible. 
Yeah, see, I started my career in the 90s. It was 1990 in the UK when I started my career and we were working from an old Victorian asylum. Yep. Those days were very different, weren't they? Yeah. And so when I was taken to hospital, the first, when I started to disclose what was going on, um, the social worker who both my wife and I knew professionally and personally, her first response was, oh my God, Al, um, we've got to schedule you. And again, okay. for a police officer to be scheduled, that's, that's no, you, you, that, no, one, no one goes there. No. And that's when my wife stepped in and said, uh, no, sorry, that's not going to happen tonight. Did she really? Yeah. She's awesome. She is. She is. <laughs> she still is. You're lucky to have her. Oh, uh, yeah. I cannot, cannot express um, how fortunate I am, Tina. Oh, love it. So you weren't um, sectioned under the Mental Health Act or anything. You went home but must have had very intense care for a while there. Yeah, the agreement essentially was uh, to keep me out of being um, admitted to hospital was that I would agree to see the psychiatrist three days a week and take medication. So I was put on a drug, or two drugs. One was an antidepressant, which you would understand. The other was a drug called Melorol, uh, which is no longer used in Australia. But it, it's essentially, it's an incre incredibly strong antipsychotic sort of sedative that prevents you from forming any intent to mm -hmm. harm. Any. Why is it not used anymore? I don't know, um, but but I I I just know that uh, it turned me into a complete zombie. Zombie, um, yeah. But but also what it did do, Tina, it allowed me to sleep. And my recollection for those first couple of weeks is just sleeping and sleeping and sleeping, um, getting up, having a cup of coffee, having a cigarette, and nothing else. Zero, zero. I was uh, just, uh, I was a ghost in a body. Did it, do you feel like it kind of gave your body a chance, even though the medication was harsh, it gave your body a chance to reset? Yeah, it did. That's, that period of sleep was critically important just for my brain to start to calm down, but my, my physical body to just rest because I was on such a state of, of intense hypervigilance um, that outwardly you would think Al's not hypervigilant, but internally it was just like I am on, on such high alert, ready to snap at anyone, anything. Um, yeah, I was dangerous. I don't deny I was in a dangerous place. Yeah, you frightened yourself. It's terrifying. Yeah, it is. Okay, so let's move the conversation along a little bit and focus on recovery. And I'm not um, dismissing the intense amount of hard work that would have taken place to, to move into and along to your recovery journey. So you slept, you needed that, you saw the psychiatrist regularly, but there's so much more than that, isn't there? Yeah, it's, it's important to understand uh, the illness. It's important to understand the way uh, your brain is affected. It's important to understand the, the damage you've done to yourself physically. And it's a matter of uh, healing not only your brain and your mind, but your whole body. That's, that is critical. And I think my psychiatrist was a 
a little bit perhaps ahead of his times where he wanted me to start to to move again because I had become very sedentary and he wanted me to start moving and then then start to build up my my physical fitness levels to rebuild my body. How did you find the motivation to do that? Because that's the hardest thing when we know we need to to move and, and get out there and, and, and exercise or whatever, but it's so bloody hard when you feel like that. Oh, it is it is almost impossible. I was very fortunate. A, uh, there was a gymnasium nearby that was, wasn't was a public gymnasium, it was a, a private gym, and one of the trainers there, um, her partner was a police officer, and she was a, a good friend of ours, and she sort of set a, a training program for me, and if I, if I didn't turn up, she'd ring up. Okay, you were accountable. <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, ju- and I, th- I think the fact that she genuinely cared, that made a difference. Um, you know, the, my colleagues would, were directed by our commander not to have any contact with me. Oh, so gosh. my my circle of friends and support uh, was uh, was basically limited to my wife, a couple of very close friends, um, and this this personal trainer. Uh, sadly, my my family uh, did not want to engage with me apart from my wife. So the feelings of being contagious uh, of it wasn't, and this is what I think people need to understand, Tina, just because you're getting clinical assistance doesn't mean that help is, is fantastic, that help, mm. help is a really positive experience. It can be, in some ways, even more of a negative than, than uh, the actual illnesses themselves. But, but that gets back to a perception. We know that clinical intervention is crucial and yes it does and will help but people have to need to understand all the reality of what goes on for some people when they engage with clinicians yeah do you think now with your knowledge about and your involvement in services that inpatient units particularly are much more trauma informed i have uh, not been a patient myself, but I have been with people who are very close to me who have been uh, in the public mental health system. It It is a very challenging environment. Uh, I've also uh, been exposed to the private mental health system and there, there are stark differences, but also it is still a very challenging environment. What I think is critically important is that if it was at all possible, we could provide as experienced and qualified clinicians relevant to the mental illness and or illnesses that have a comorbidity Mm -hmm. in a facility that specialised in that particular mental illness and or illnesses. To put everybody under the one Mm -hmm. branch of mental illness or mental ill health, I don't believe is the right approach. And I take that to the medical model. We have orthopedic surgeons, we have oncologists, we have uh, gynecologists, we have specialists who deal with a particular medical issue. So 
why can't we have clinicians who deal with particular mental illnesses? Well said. <laughs> Very well said, Alan. So your recovery moving was 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 crucially important and um, and I know that you talk very well about physiological health um, and, and it's kind of holistically. So you changed your diet, you improved your diet and did all of those other things that we know um, increase our chances of becoming well. Yeah, look, I'd, I didn't know enough back then about uh, what, what our food can do as far as increasing or declining our, our physical and mental health. But it was also I had a very significant goal, perhaps an overriding goal, Tina, that I had to get back to work because for me, being back at work was proving that I was I was Al Sparks again. So that was very, very important. But uh, because I was so unwell, the likelihood of me returning to work, to work quickly wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the longer we are away from work, the harder it is to return to work. But then the situation was that if you were diagnosed with a mental illness, then the most likely course of action would be you would be discharged. So I never applied for discharge. I didn't want to be discharged. I wanted to come back to work because that's what I saw was Al showing that he was okay again and ready to go. So sadly, that didn't happen. Um, I was discharged without my consent, and that caused a relapse of my mental health. Yeah. So you had you took a few steps back as a result of that. I mean, you lost everything. Yeah, it's uh, you know I I use and refer to the, what we call the mental health continuum these days, um, breaking our state of psychological health into four colours. Um, you know, I went from green in 93 to the red. Um, I worked from the red to get back perhaps to the orange, uh, maybe borderline, sometimes yellow. But when I got that phone call to say I'd been discharged, um, I was rapidly back to the red zone again. Yeah, of course. So tell me what you did. Oh, uh, I, I, I was Humpty Dumpty again. I just fell off that wall mm. and all those pieces I'd put back together again uh, were broken. And you go, what's the point? Why bother? Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't go on. I just can't go on. And at this stage, uh, my psychiatrist had left town, so I had no clinicians to assist me. Um, just the support of my wife. Um, she was just there just saying, uh, we'll work something out. We'll work something out. We'll, we'll do something. But um, you know, she said, look, you, you, I know this is so hard, but you don't have to worry about the cops anymore you know that that's gone so I know you can't put it behind you but let's focus on today just today and slowly but surely it's trying to find out what you can do and I look at the aspect of um, you know there's a perhaps some people have the idea that we'll, we'll just get somebody a job that'll that's the best thing for them just get them into work well I did some things that were for me so demeaning it it had a negative impact Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know now, Tina, it's a matter of identifying what it is that will give people back a sense of worth and purpose mm-hmm. to make them want to get out of bed of a morning, to make them feel as though they are contributing and are helping. And, yes, yeah, slowly but surely I started to do that. Um, 
and eventually became quite successful in business. But I never, ever had my sense of worth and purpose like the police gave me. Mm. So I think I was uh, subconsciously or consciously still looking for that. Mm. Uh, my health started to decline again some years later, and I, I became very worried about that and sought some help and support from, um, from the police association, and they were f- magnificent. And um, I was uh, reassessed by some psychiatrists, uh, and the news wasn't good. And they, uh, one of them, you know, he asked me a question. He said, what is it you really want to do? And I said, deep down? He said, yeah, deep down. What is it you really want to do? And I said, oh, I want to sail a boat across the nation. He said, mate, I, I think you should go and do that. <laughs> yes, you, and you did. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, uh, that's part of the story. But, but uh, I think what's, what I've analysed, Tina, is that, that that particular part of my life, it allowed me to regain my sense of worth. Yeah. And that's what we need to identify for people that if they have lost their careers through psychological injury or illness, helping them identify what it will be to get them back to where they want to be. And that's not an easy task. I I understand that. But if the quicker we can do it and the better we can do it, um, the more positive results uh, we will achieve. Yeah, I agree with that too. And you did sail that boat across the nation, didn't you, single-handedly? No, no, with my wife and my two daughters. Uh, oh, it was a family. Wow, what an achievement. So my girls were 9 and 14. Uh, we we borrowed a lot of money and bought a boat in England, uh, not really knowing what we were going to do. Uh, we never planned to bring it back to Australia. But we set out from, um, from England and, and sailed to France and then uh, got down to Spain and ran to Portugal, um, pretty much on our way to the Mediterranean, actually. And we met a family from um, from Belgium who were sailing around the world, and, and they just uh, rightly or wrongly assumed sailing back. They they got all excited that they had somebody to sail with, <laughs> and um, poor Debs, uh, I think she just crapped crapped herself at that stage. <laughs> but we um, we did something that I I now relate back to my current work as as we sat down and we analysed the risks that we were going to face individually and collectively. And if we were going to achieve this goal, how would we overcome those risks? And I relate that to, you know, to today's world. Tina, what are the risks that we face uh, mentally, physically, and how do we minimise those risks to achieve the goals that we want to achieve? So the analogy, I think, is very, very appropriate because we, and there was another young lad from Coffs Harbour who joined us, um, young Lukey, uh, everybody was very inexperienced. We certainly weren't qualified sailors in, in any stretch of the imagination, but but we sailed that boat back to Australia and, and we worked together. We, we took care of each other. We took, took care of our boat. And they're things that I think we can all do today is just take care of each other. Yeah. I I talked about this in the last podcast I did, but I'm going to talk about it again. I, um, I've just read the book Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Have you read it? No, I haven't, but it's been referred to me as a, as a recommended read. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, yeah, some of his views about antidepressants I might not completely agree with because I am, I've seen more people become well because they take medication than not. 
but his research around connecting with people, connecting with communities, connecting with nature, purposeful roles. I mean, everything you've talked about just reinforces to me that that Johan Hari is onto something. Yeah, and it's it's a matter of understanding our bodies and being able to heal. Um, I work in a program called The Change Room, and it's a two-day program for people who are injured and on, on uh, a workers' compensation claim. And it's a very holistic program. We run over two days, but it's spaced a week apart. And it's educating people about the, the process of how we break down physically and mentally and what we can do to heal ourselves. And the changes in people is, is extraordinary because it empowers them and motivates them, inspires them to make subtle little positive changes, which when you add them all up, they make significant changes. But it's just showing that people genuinely care about them and want to help them, um, I think, is, is probably the, the match that lights the candle for them. Yeah. So it's a group environment, is it? You're all in it together with the change room. Yeah. yeah we, when That's we, it. And we actually start off in the change room of major sporting stadiums. Ah. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's finding a better way for your life and being somewhere in a very unique environment that no one ever goes into because this is where elite sports people go to. Uh, and we have elite sports people that are part of the program that, that explain how they've overcome their physical and psychological adversities to be where they are today. And it gives people hope. And when you give people hope, that's critically important. Yeah, it is. It is. And if, you've, if you're in a group, you're in a team, uh, it just gives you a much better chance of a, a, of a good outcome and improvement because we need that. Yeah, no one wants to feel alone, that they're the only person who has suffered. And I know that some people find it very confrontational to be a part of a group that maybe experiences uh, psychological injury or, or illness. But just to know that it's just not you. And when people understand that it's been a physiological breakdown that started off most times as a physical change, mm it's more accepting. Yeah. And when I learnt you know, what the process was, I've gone, ah, okay, now I can accept that. And, and now I know what to do to keep myself physically and mentally as healthy as I can. And then you know what signs to look out for in the future so that it doesn't snowball. Correct. Sometimes you just have to intercept. Yeah, you do. Great work. I, I didn't know about that. That's what's really interesting. So I'm keeping my eye on the time. Let me ask you, there's a couple of things I want to um, just cover before we wrap up. And that's the importance of um, having family care and, and support us when we're unwell. But I want to be kind of real about when we talk about this in terms of how hard it is for our families when we're unwell. And that, unfortunately, is something um, that is a reality. Um, what was your experience of that, Alan? Oh, the, the damage that uh, my illnesses caused to my wife and my children uh, will, will never be fully uh, calculated. But I think it is critically important that when a member of the family develops mental illnesses such as PTSD, 
and anxiety, depression and the like. Those families are educated as much as they possibly can about a what the symptoms are, what the causations are, not, not the specific instance, but the causation and what they need to do to shield themselves from the collateral damage those illnesses can cause. So they have to be shielded, they have to be supported, and they have to be cared for because essentially in the ideal world, they are the 24-7 carers of the person. And it's the approach they can take can make the difference between a, a good recovery, a short recovery, or a very painful, extended, agonising recovery. What do you think the most important thing that we can do um, in workplaces, in communities, in our friendship groups? If we know that somebody that is in our lives every day is caring for a loved one who's struggling with their mental health, what do you think is the best thing that we can do to support those people? Deal with the reality of it, first and foremost. Um, Unless you have experienced it yourself, you do not know what it's like for them. To reach out and say, um, I am here for you. I will do whatever I can to help you. Um, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what it's like, but I'm just here. And and then to be proactive and actually do things. So as opposed to, well, just tell me, um, I'm here whenever you need me. Well, no one's actually going to reach out mm-hmm. in most circumstances. But physically go and do things that show that you care. And and research, speak to professional organisations. You know, we know that organisations such as Beyond Blue and the like, they have experts who are there to guide you as to how to help somebody. So be proactive is very important about if you don't know how to help, find out how to help. And each case is different, of course, and it's unique, but... but doing whatever you can to prove to somebody uh, you are there for them and just don't say, oh, look, you know, if, if ever you need me, just I'm only a phone call or a text away. Well, um, you might as well be on the other side of the world as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, because we just don't do it, do we? No, we don't, no. Um, you know, just say tomorrow morning at 9am, you and I are going for coffee. Love it. Five o'clock tomorrow afternoon, uh, we're going to go and sit down and uh, – just have a glass of a glass of water, or we're going to go for a walk. Just mm-hmm. remove them sometimes, just from that that oppressive environment. Just get them away for a little while. Take the kids for the weekend, um, so you and your partner can go away. Anything at all to just break break the cycle of, of how horrific it can be. I like that. So, Alan, advice. Nobody likes giving advice, but I'm going to ask you to, what advice would you give to any current first responders or new recruits that are going into the police force or as paramedic um, in terms of how to care for their own mental health in those kind of roles? Uh, educate, educate yourself um, the, and look at the, what are the physiological risks you will face in the work you do. So understanding that their sleep patterns will change. So what impact does it have in your body when you become sleep deprived? 
and we know how critically dangerous that is. Understand the HPA axis and the HPA axis dysfunction, how they play a major part in your body. Because for first responders, they can very quickly become continually exposed to acute stress situations. So the HPA axis plays a major part in their transformation from being healthy to being unwell. Um, understand that poor nutrition will have a significant impact on their physical and mental health. Mm-hmm. And uh, learn little techniques such as diaphragmatic breathing, mm-hmm. tactical breathing. Um, it, it's a wonderful way to calm the body down. Understand the dangers of alcohol, understand the dangers of caffeine, understand the dangers of nicotine, and very, very importantly, being proactive about your physiological health. Do not let it get to a state where you have to have a reactive approach. Listen to your body and tell you when it needs some protection. Yes, yeah. And we know statistically through our research with Beyond Blue the that up to two years, most first responders' physical and mental health is good. And after two years, it starts to decline. Right. So why does it decline? It's because of these physiological changes that take place. And when you are exposed to life-threatening situations, when you're continually exposed to traumatic events, you are vulnerable to the development of trauma-related mental illness. That's the risk that you face. How do you personally, professionally minimise those risks? Bettina, these are also principles that need to be applied for everybody in today's world. Yeah. Not only in the workplace, but our children from the youngest age because they are exposed to being chronically stressed through the fact that they're just not sleeping, they're not moving, they're not exercising, they're eating poor quality foods, um, they're exposed to stresses through bullying and the like, it's, it's coming back younger and younger and younger. Mm-hmm. So let's educate from the earliest possible age about the physiological risks and empower people to look after themselves. Fantastic. You're actually very good at giving advice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My final point that I'd like to um, to cover is what you do for your own self care. Well, I adopt those four principles: that uh, yeah, sleep, nutrition, uh, and movement and exercise. I use technology to help me, not harm me. Um, I use a device that measures my heart rate, my it analyzes my sleep, it calculates my my level of fitness. So um, I use technology to help. I, I endeavour to try and get a minimum of eight hours sleep a night. Um, I do not. I try to minimise the amount of processed carbohydrate I eat. Uh, I eat carbohydrate, but just not processed carbohydrate. Um, I, I exercise. Um, I still play rugby union. Um, I do boxing training. I minimise my alcohol consumption. I love a good coffee or Mm -hmm. perhaps two a day. Uh, So my fitness levels, just checking my little app here, uh, it tells me that I am so far above the excellent range for fitness for my age. um, It shows me that I'm, I'm going really, really well. Fantastic. Uh, Yeah. So they're, they're my, what I call my foundation stones. And this is what I discuss when I do my, my mental uh, wellness presentations. It's 
why those foundation stones are critically important to us, the dangers if we don't do them, and the benefits of doing them. And what I love, Tina, is this is stuff everybody can do themselves. Yeah. No matter what age you are, you can do this. And the more you can do it, the more you become the living, breathing example of how you want others to be, um, the more the more positivity we can spread throughout our families, our peers, our communities and our nation. I agree. Good words, good words. It's very important, Tina, that we highlight the great work that people are doing. And there's been so much emphasis on, on mental health. And the tragedy I see is that people are equating mental health as mental illness. And we know that they're different, but that's, that's how they're, they're melding together today. So I, th- I would like us to start thinking about physiological health as opposed to mental health. And, but but you know, prom- as people in any way that we can that are actually making a difference to people's lives in a, in a positive way and looking after themselves. You know, it's, so much focus has been on those who are not well. well I say let's, let's shift the spotlight and put it on the people who are well and learning from them as to how they do it. Yeah, we are all accountable for our own mental health. I've said this a lot on our podcasts, um, you know, but we can't be accountable if we don't have the literacy, if we don't have the knowledge. 100%. So let's, let's educate as much as we can about how our bodies and brains and minds are impacted through negative behaviours. Thank you so much, um, Alan. I actually fangirled a little bit over doing this podcast. I was so excited and you are a remarkable man with a remarkable story and thank you for the work that you do. Oh, thanks, Dan. But but I want to thank you because it's people like you who go out to seek other people who have knowledge that can help others. And if we didn't have people like you, we we lose the capability of doing that. So all all credit is to you and Amy and your team for doing what you're doing. Um, we're just we, we're tools in your toolbox to help change the world. Thank you so much, Alan. It's been a pleasure. You take great care of yourself, Tina. Thanks for what you're doing. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcentre.com.au.